right, we're going to be starting. If you want to find your seats, bring your coffee with you. Just because there's maybe a little bit of time for you to run and find another seminar if you are uh, not here for um, my seminar, as well as the fact that this is going to be a historical look at fundamentalism and modernism. And so um, we will touch on scripture briefly, but you need to know that. And so if you're not interested in hearing a little bit about church history, modern church history, then, um, then it's this fair warning. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. I'm going to ask you if I could just pray as we open up this time in uh, the study of what's going on in the church, uh, in the recent history of the church, but also in the future history of the church. And I, I think I'm very, very strongly believe that if, uh, if we don't learn these lessons, we will repeat them. And so let me pray. Father, thank you for your guiding hand in the church throughout so many stages uh, from the events of Acts chapter 2 through today on until you will take your church to be with you in the clouds. We know that you superintend all of it. You are sovereign over everything. And so we recognize that nothing happens without your knowledge. There are no mistakes in your grand design. And yet, Lord God, we know that that does not mean that you remove our responsibility from us. And so we pray that as we uh, read about the decisions, often very, very difficult decisions that were made in recent church history, and the compromises and the results of those compromises, may we not be too quick to judge, knowing that we are living in difficult times as well. And it will be prudent for us to learn these lessons so that as we are put in the positions of making decisions, we would make the right ones, Lord. Make us humble people, always ready to listen and learn, ready to correct our errors, make us courageous and bold, ready to stand against the onslaught of evil when it comes. And we pray, Lord God, that through the actions of others, we might not be puffed up in pride, but in humility, Lord, we might beseech you all the more that we would not fall as some of them have. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the benefit of our recording as well as for the benefit of those of you that maybe are just joining us, my name is Richard Bargus, and I'm the executive director of IFCA International. And um, as we were thinking about this theme for the convention this year of fundamentalism and reclaiming biblical fundamentalism, I thought that this seminar would be appropriate. I don't normally teach seminars. I'm, I'm usually preoccupied with other things, but this seminar fits in so well with the theme, I thought that I would bring it. I have previously taught this at Shepherds 360 conference, and um, I, I thought I would present it here as well because I think it's an important part of the whole conversation that we've been having around fundamentalism. That picture that you're looking at there on the screen is jarring, 
Any picture with Adolf Hitler in it is jarring. I think too often in the climate that we're in politically, we have people that will quickly jump to the fact that you are a Nazi or you are Hitler uh, when you don't agree with their uh, political persuasion. That's not fair. Because there was a literal Hitler. And I think we need to uh, remember that before we do that ourselves. Um, the man next to him may not be as familiar to, to you. You may know the name, though. His name is Neville Chamberlain. In the 2017 World War II movie, The Darkest Hour, Winston Churchill cries out in frustration over the policies of Neville Chamberlain. You cannot reason with a tiger when your head is in its mouth. Now, although those words are more likely an artistic embellishment for the cinema, they do fairly sum up Churchill's frustration with the policies of Neville Chamberlain that sought to appease Adolf Hitler. And he did this by ignoring his aggressions in Europe. Chamberlain truly believed that by signing the Munich Agreements and giving the Sudetenland to Germany, along with Hitler's promise not to continue invading other nations, that Europe would be saved. Now, I want on this side of history, think about that, that Neville Chamberlain believed that Hitler would not be aggressive. If you did a Google search of Neville Chamberlain and looked at the photos, you will find even more shocking pictures of Herr Herr Hitler there shaking hands and them standing together and smiling and all kinds of interactions of Neville Chamberlain and Hitler. Chamberlain famously came home and declared to Britain that they had achieved, quote, peace. For our time. Chamberlain literally thought that Hitler was a misunderstood man. When in fact, the bloodthirsty tiger that he was, that he would never be satisfied until he had fully conquered the world. But Winston Churchill understood this. And as much as he didn't want to, he understood that war was the only way to stop him. The notion of appeasement, by the way, is not only shared among politicians. Unfortunately, in a world that requires vigilance and sometimes engagements and theological battles, there are those who would seek appeasements. There are those who would seek compromise for the sake of peace in our time. But as I hope to demonstrate with some examples from recent history, appeasement and compromise in the face of theological liberalism are always the easier routes, but they never achieve the promise that they claim. So let's set the stage. 
The fundamentalist and modernist controversy is where we need to begin so that we can understand this in our context. Now, in order to be clear, we need to understand that prior to the mid-19th century, evangelical was synonymous with fundamentalism. The term fundamentalism wasn't really coined until then. And so if you were speaking of somebody as an evangelical, they always thought that they were uh, people who were of the book, that they were bound by the teachings of scriptures. They were, there was no need to say a conservative evangelical. The word conservative was built into that. All Christians who identified with the evangel, the gospel message of Christ, were evangelicals. And fundamentalism was a movement that derived its name from those evangelical Christians that sought unity across denominational lines, but were committed to certain fundamental doctrines that have been accepted by historic Christianity. The number of these fundamentals, sometimes people will ask, well, what are the fundamentals? They vary. You, you can find in different writings different lists. Um, they all include the same things, but some are longer than others. And these fundamentals, although they did vary in number, are almost always include these that are in our list. The inerrancy of Scripture, and sometimes they might be worded slightly different, but the inerrancy of Scripture, infallibility was added later because people messed with the word inerrancy. The virgin birth of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the reality of miracles, the imminence and physical return of Christ. These are the basics. These are the fundamentals. Fundamentalists stated that a person had to minimally subscribe to these core doctrines to be within the historic Christian church because a denial of these doctrines often leads to a wholesale denial of the faith. This is not sufficient, but it is the core. Modernists, we would call them progressives today, really all of them are theological liberals on the other hand, they wanted to focus not on the contents of belief, but as I mentioned in our our Q&A yesterday, the feeling or the spirits of Christianity. By denying the need to subscribe to core doctrines of the faith, they could cover the fact that they actually denied many or all of these fundamentals while still insisting that they were a part of the Christian church and that they actually spoke for and represented Christianity. So fundamentalists rejected this minimalistic and emotion-driven religion as inadequate at best and heretical at worst. Several courageous defenders rose up in obedience to Scripture's call to purify the church. And I want to point to the fact that this is driven by Scripture. And this is why we need to continuously fight the fight for the Bible. Because everything is derived from the Scriptures. 
Here are three texts. Let me read them to you. 2 John 9 and following. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. But even if we, the apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The last example I'll give you, and I could give you multiples, is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. Paul writes to Timothy, O Timothy, guard the deposits entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. In the middle of the 19th century, theological liberalism had already entered into almost all mainline denominations. And this was possible because liberal theologians subscribed to the biblical creeds of their denominations and institutions while at the same time teaching non-evangelical theology. Following that German liberal theologian that we spoke of yesterday morning, Friedrich Schliermacher, and in case you need to put him in a historical perspective, he lived from 1768 to 1834, modernists asserted that Christianity was not primarily about doctrine. Did you hear that? Christianity, in their view, was not primarily about doctrine, but rather, to quote them, a feeling, intuition, and experience. This is why we're warning you about that in our churches. That is nothing but liberalism. And as such, Schleiermacher set the stage for the setting aside of doctrine in favor of a Christianity that affirmed a faith based upon feelings and experiences. And along with the growth of liberal Christianity came a desire to put aside doctrinal differences among different denominations in order to bring unity around an ecumenical spirit. By the way, for those of you that are not in the IFCA or those of you that are new to the IFCA, we are very, very clear about how we feel about ecumenism. We're not for it. Because when you start lowering everybody to the lowest common denominator, you end up with something that is not Christianity. But because of this movement in modernism, that led to the establishment of the World Council of Churches. Again, IFCA not in favor of the World Council of Churches. But this was established in 1948. This is all happening at the same time. And it was made up of churches. Let me give you a slide that shows you this quote. This is in their doctrinal state. This is their creed. Churches which accept our Lord Jesus Christ as God and Savior. 
That's it. If that's what you believe, you can be in the World Council of Churches. And that brief doctrinal statement was all that was required of those joining the WCC. None were required to expand on what they meant by those words. And so to the liberal, words are pliable. Words can be redefined. And the fundamentalists of past days understood this. In spite of being often portrayed as ignorant, uneducated, backwards, anti-science, and anti-progressive by liberals, we were categorized as fighting fundamentalists who were uncharitable, ungracious, and divisive, not by liberals, but by evangelicals. The fundamentalists stood their ground, and they called their churches, their missions agencies, their educational institutions, and their parachurch ministries, and all those that were unfaithful to Christ and his word. They called them on it, they put them out, or they left them. But here's the thing. Not everyone within evangelicalism agreed with those calling for this separation. Thinking, no, 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 there's got to be a better way. We want unity. Why divide the body of Christ? There's a better way, a middle way. This is the birthing of new evangelicalism. Around the time of the establishment of the World Council of Churches, the inauguration of a new movement is underway. Seeking to leave the separatistic fundamentalism that seemed to be more insulated from the world, conservative evangelical men, such as those named in your slide there, Charles Fuller, Carl F.H. Henry, E.J. Carnell, Harold Linzel, Harold J. Ockingay, and Billy Graham, and there would be others, sought to influence the liberal denominations and the scholars in the academy They sought to do that while still maintaining conservative evangelical doctrine through what they called new evangelicalism. All of these men held a fundamental doctrine, but they felt that more needed to be done to reunite the churches. With that, they would win back the denominations, and then they would be able to engage the liberal church. When I say engage, don't think engage in battle. What I mean is sit down, shake hands, share coffee, have a love fest, and then they would eventually see the error of their ways and come running back into the true church. This new evangelical movement established, among other things, Fuller Theological Seminary. You have these lists in there, and you can see the dates. They're all around the same time period, 1947. The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, 1950. Christianity Today magazine, 1956. All of these were established by that group of men that are listed there. Graham himself sought a kinder, gentler evangelicalism as evidenced for his vision for Christianity Today, a magazine begun by Graham and his father-in-law, Nathan Bell. Of Christianity Today... Graham said, 
Let me give you the quote here. It was my vision that the magazine be pro-church and pro-denomination and that it become the rallying point of evangelicalism within and without the large denominations. Now what I want you to see in this quote is that Graham was looking to bring unity to sides that seemed to be so separate that they couldn't meet in the middle. And Graham was trying to bridge the divide. I think his intentions were good. I also want you to note that he, he, this is in the context of the denominations being apostate very, very quickly. So he knows this. It's not, uh, these are just small differences. These are major, major differences. And the denominations are bleeding. And the churches that are conservative are being shut down. And the properties are being taken over. There is war going on between the liberals and the conservatives. You need to look up uh, Fosdick's sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? It was a straight-up fight for Christianity in America. And Graham is in the midst of this saying, can we just all get along, as a great philosopher in California said. (laughs) Over time and under the influence of his father-in-law, Dr. Bell, Graham had moved. He had moved from separating from apostate denominations to seeking their approval and cooperation in hopes of winning them back to conservative theology. This is also true for Graham's Crusades as well. In 1957, the year after Christianity Today was launched, Graham held his famous New York Crusade in Manhattan where he fully broke with his fundamentalist roots and his connections by cooperating with a group, let me give you this quote. Oh, excuse me, I don't have that one yet. His, um, a group that was predominantly non-evangelical and even included out-and-out modernists. It's also, it also meant sending converts back to their local churches, no matter how liberal those churches might be. That's a quote given to us by George Marsden in his book, Reforming Fundamentalism, Fuller Seminary and the New Evangelicalism. This is put out by Fuller Seminary quite proudly that this is their official history by the historian George Marsden. They're not ashamed of this history and where they have gone. They are proud of this history. Ian Murray notes that newspapers at the time of the crusade reported Graham saying these words. These are shocking. We'll send them to their own churches during this crusade in Manhattan. Their own churches being Roman Catholic, Protestant, or Jewish. The rest is up to God. That's how far he had moved. See, brothers and sisters, liberalism does not move towards conservatism. The danger is that fundamentalism moves towards new evangelicalism, and continues to drift towards liberalism. I think in his later years, to be fair to Dr. Graham, I think that he saw some of that stuff and regretted it deeply. He was trying, and all those that are these moderate middle guys really are trying to get something that is good, but 
let's not deal with shoulda, coulda, woulda, and the reality of what we learn. Remember Neville Chamberlain. The mindset of new evangelicalism was such that if evangelical Christians could shed their embarrassing fundamentalism and its unwillingness to bend, then on the other side, liberalism would be willing to let them sit at the table as equals. As someone has said, this deal with the devil was such that if conservatives would call liberals Christians, then liberals would call conservatives scholars. Church historian again, George Marsden, observes, Such successes in culturally influential religious circles were leading Graham toward the conviction that he could make marvelous inroads into America's major denominations if he could jettison the disastrous fundamentalist image of separatism, anti-intellectualism, and contentiousness. That Graham was, in fact, moving in that direction is made abundantly clear in a letter written by Graham to Harold Linzel, then a professor at Fuller Seminary, regarding Graham's vision for Christianity today. That's the quote I just gave you a second ago. Let's look at the quote. He says this, Plant the evangelical flag in the middle of the road. Taking a conservative theological position, but a definite liberal approach to social problems. Christianity today would combine the best in liberalism and the best in fundamentalism without compromising theologically. Fuller Seminary, BGEA, and Christianity today stand as the most obvious examples of this failed philosophy. And today, each of them stands as a testimony to the bankruptcy of this idea that one can seek a middle ground without compromising, and the eventual theological slide is clearly seen not only upon these institutions, but upon evangelicalism today. This is not the only place it's happened, though. Let's continue to learn these history lessons. This is a a problem that happened. Uh, I could give you multiples. This is a prominent one. But this happened across denominations as well. And I want to look at one specific example within Presbyterianism. This challenge to historic Christianity that happened across all kinds of denominational lines gives us an example in the Presbyterian Church U.S. denomination. Don't confuse that with the PCUSA denomination that is present today. The flagship school of the PCUS for many years was a name you would recognize, Princeton Seminary. And as other schools, it was deeply affected by the incursion of theological liberalism in its faculty. Now, we today do not think of Princeton as a conservative theological school. But it was not that long ago. It was deeply affected by this. And among the few remaining conservative professors stood J. Gresham Machen, professor of New Testament. And he saw this influx 
of liberalism into Christianity as a whole. And Machen wrote in his book, which I recommend you buy and read, is Christianity and Liberalism, released in 1923. This is what Machen insightfully saw. It may appear that what the liberal theologian has retained after abandoning to the enemy one Christian doctrine after another is not Christianity at all, but a religion which is so entirely different from Christianity as to belong in a distinct category. In other words, Machen is saying liberalism is not Christianity at all. It is another religion altogether. This stand for Orthodox Christian doctrine at Princeton came to a head eventually with the denomination and faculty in 1924 and 1925 when the Auburn Affirmation was signed by 1,274 ministers in the PCUS. This affirmation made it clear that the fundamentals of the faith, let me give them to you again so you understand what we're talking about, the fundamentals of the faith This list, particularly, did not, this is what the Auburn Affirmation said, that it did not need to be affirmed by PCUS candidates for ordination. This allowed for new ministers to deny these doctrines privately while being ordained for ministry so long as they subscribe to the Bible and the Westminster Confession of Faith. Now, I know you're thinking, well, how can you do both? You can't. Conservative in theology, but seeking a middle road for the sake of unity, a name you would recognize, if not from just the name, you would recognize it from many of your Christian books, Charles R. Erdman, professor of theology at Princeton. He sided with the so-called moderates in the PCUS General Assembly. He created a peace commission to study the issue. We've heard this before if you've been following what's going on in the SBC convention is we don't know what a pastor is. Let's start a study. The commission was to be made up of both liberals and conservatives within the denomination, but only conservatives that sought peace above all else. Now listen about Erdman, because although he is involved in this Presbyterian denomination, this is a different time, and this is a whole different seminar, but there were so many of our brothers that were Presbyterian that were like us in their theology, particularly premillennialism. Many of them were dispensational. And if I gave you some names, you would know them. And they were tied in as members of the IFCA. Erdman himself, professor at Princeton, was premillennial. He was a Bible conference speaker. He was a contributor to the fundamentals. But all of these didn't matter when it came to his alliances. He sought the middle ground. And Erdman held the door for liberals to walk on in and overtake the denomination and the seminary without question. And as fundamentalist Ernest Pickering wrote, I love this quote, 
This new evangelicalism approaches the liberal bear with a bit of honey instead of a gun. Realizing that the PCUS was apostate and that it was lost to modernism, Dr. Machen and the remaining conservative faculty members left their beloved seminary. The good ship Princeton was going down and there was nothing they felt they could do. They began Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia in 1929 in response. In 1936, because of the issues that were there and knowing that he was a denominational man, he felt like he needed to be in a denomination, he began. It wasn't originally called this, but quickly was named the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, which still exists to this day. Still a small denomination, but still very conservative. He was suspended by the PCUS regarding his establishment because it had leaked into the missions agency and he established an independent mission board that only supported conservative, biblical, fundamental missionaries. And so they booted him. The establishment of this new denomination, this separation from the PCUS, came at a great personal cost to Machen who lost many friends for his abandonments of the PCUS. Was, was he a reactionary? Was he overreacting to all this? He didn't think so. He wrote this. It's no wonder then that liberalism is totally different from Christianity, for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible. It bases upon the Bible both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. Machen saw his actions as contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So what are some considerations for us today? I wish I could just teach this subject as an odd historical lesson. That we could look back fondly and go, boy, those were the days. But it's all better now. That we could just move on. Today, the same faulty logic is being promoted among many conservative Christians and churches and denominations. There are many associations that are repeating history. They are sliding still. They are compromising still. They are seeking the middle ground still. Consider how many Christians today do not think that doctrine is important, but only what one feels about Christ. How many evangelicals see Roman Catholicism as basically compatible with Protestant Christianity? They say things like, we believe the same, we worship the same God, so aren't we the same? We shouldn't uh, evangelize Roman Catholics. The same false idea is spoken by some regarding Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Oneness Pentecostals, and other aberrations of historic Christianity. The whole charismatic movement is often driven by emotion over doctrine. Now, fearing that they would be seen as judgmental, many Christians are content just to accept everybody that comes in the name of Christianity. And they don't question it. The results, by the way, have been disastrous. 
London pastor Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones spoke in 1966 about the dangerous middle ground that Christians in the 20th century were mired in regarding the idea that doctrine divides and we mustn't judge people's faith by what they believe. Think about that. Don't judge my faith by what I believe. Listen to what Lloyd-Jones says. I know it's small. I apologize for that. I argue that people who do not believe the essentials of the faith, the things that are essential to salvation, cannot be guilty of schism. They are not in the church. If you do not believe a certain irreducible minimum, you cannot be a Christian. You are not in the church. He doesn't mean the building. He means the church of Jesus Christ. Have we reached a time when one must not say things like that? Have evangelicals so changed that we no longer make an assertion like that? Brothers and sisters, are we afraid to point out the fact that there are people among us who are not Christians, no matter what they say? We know what a Christian is Because the Bible tells us what a Christian is. Let us stand by that standard and not be moved. Again, seeing what was on the horizon of the theological compromise in America, J. Gresham Machen said this in 1924. Paganism has made many efforts to disrupt the Christian faith, but never a more insistent or insidious effort than it is making today. There are three possible attitudes which you may take in the present conflict. In the first place, you may stand for Christ. That is the best. In the second place, you may stand for anti-Christian modernism. That is next best. In the third place, you may be neutral. That is perhaps worst of all. The worst sin today is to say that you agree with the Christian faith and believe in the Bible, but then make common cause with those who deny the basic facts of Christianity. Never was it more obviously true that he is not with Christ, is against him. Jesus said it this way in Revelation, Be hot or be cold. But don't be lukewarm where our Lord will spit you out of his mouth. I certainly agree that the Bible speaks against a brawling, pugnacious spirit. You can find that in 1 Timothy 3.3 3 if you want to argue with me about it. Or Titus 1.7. And that is good and that is true. But let that not be the overarching attitude that we have. The Bible also calls us to fight for some things. And as was expressed last night, that includes doctrine. 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. 1 Timothy 6, 12. 1 Timothy 10, 4 to 6. This is our basis for our spiritual warfare. And like the modernists who followed Friedrich Schleiermacher, many in conservative Christian churches affirm affirm this idea that Christianity is less about what you believe and more about what you feel in your heart. And this dangerous idea sets the stage for outright rejection of all orthodox doctrines of our faith. We are seeing the ravages of this idea among our young people leaving the faith 
because they have no doctrinal anchors for their souls. They're adrift upon a sea of subjectivity. And as far as we are guilty for it, we must own the fact that the church in some ways has aided that. Today, the church and denominations often function like big money corporations. They're very slow to change, reluctant to put at risk the surface sense of unity in fear of putting at jeopardy the large amount of financial giving that benefits it. Because of this, statesman leaders arise within the church and denomination that seeks to walk the middle ground and keep peace among all parties. You know, sometimes I feel like I don't, I don't want to, I definitely don't want to offend anybody. I'm not seeking to be hated. But there comes a point, and you will all face it, is that I've just got to speak the truth, and if you fire me from the IFCA, I'm sure there's a church I can find that needs a pastor in some small town. If not, I'll just go preach on a corner. There's plenty of sinners. There's enough for all of you. You know, we, there's plenty of work for the Lord to have us do. So, and you will find that somebody will oppose you. Just stand up. Do it right. Do it right. Speak the truth, though. And if they fire you, you don't work for them. You work for Jesus. So don't be afraid. Don't let the fear of man overwhelm you. That really is what it all comes down to. The middle road is because we fear men. It's a cry, a long cry, the attitude of many today from the words of Jesus. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. There's a lot of people who've lost their saltiness because they refuse to suffer hardship, persecution, and being reviled for their faith. The middle ground has proven to be not only ineffective, but the reality is it has proven to be deadly. May the Lord raise up more courageous Christians, more courageous churchmen who are not afraid to speak up for truth, even if it may cost us our friends and our influence in this life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for this time that you've given us here to think about the history of the church of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the courageous churchmen of the past. Thank you for these men that we've mentioned today. We know they did this in your strength and power. We could go back and, and mention so many other men, men that the controversies that endured, like Charles Spurgeon, it broke them. They died early deaths, most likely because of the fact that they would not give in, no matter how much they would lose their popularity. Men like J. Gresham Machen, a great man of faith, 
a man that would be separated from the things that he held dearly and loved, that would even lose lifelong friends. But he would do it because he knew it was true. We pray that you would raise up many more like these and others who have gone before us. Help us, Lord God, because in those dark times, often we are not in a conference with other brothers who agree with us all around. Oftentimes, we're sitting in a church boardroom and we have men that we love opposing us and they're asking of us to take a moderate route, a route that would allow for the continuation of sin in our midst, the compromising of our message, the changing of our doctrine so that we might appeal to a greater group. And because our churches often struggle with their size and their finances, these things look very appealing to us. They seem like love, but in a sense they are not. Instead, they are a deadly compromise that may end up killing our local church. Help us, Lord, in those moments as the fear of man begins to rise up in us that we would call out to you and your presence would be known that we are not alone and that you are with us and that we could courageously take a stand and if we have to, Lord, that we can endure the buffets, the buffeting of the evil one and those that are being used by him to sway us away from the right path. Thank you. In Christ's name, we pray for these things. Amen. Well, we have a few minutes, I think. I believe we end at 10. Is that right? Anybody know the schedule? 10? All right, so why don't we... We didn't plan for this, but I've got 15 minutes, and I don't know if you have some, some questions. We... We don't have a mic set up, so if you're going to speak, if you could stand up and speak a little bit loudly so everybody can hear. Do we have any questions? Oh, you've got a mic. Okay, we've got a mic here for you. Thank you. If we don't have any questions, we can just dismiss, but thought we have time. We have one back here. Yes, ma'am. The George Marsden book, is that what you're asking? Yeah, let me, let me give you the full title of it. It's Christianity, well, excuse me, um, I'm looking through my notes here to get the full name. Reforming Fundamentalism. And then it has a subtitle, Fuller Seminary and the New Evangelicalism. The author's name is George Marsden. Again, it's, it's, not, it's somewhat critical from George Marsden's point of view. From Fuller Seminary's view, it's wonderful because it shows you the uptight fundamentalists that started it, and then it shows you the wonderful, freeing liberalism that had come upon them where they introduced all kinds of things that we would be shocked is being taught in an evangelical seminary. Um, and by the way, over time, Fuller has paid the price for that. It has dwindled and shrunk and lost its effectiveness, and all kinds of wackiness has come out of Fuller in the subsequent years. But George Marsden does a good job on that book. Uh, it's, a little, it's a little scholarly, but there are times when uh, it's just eye-opening. So, any other questions? You'd also mentioned a book by Machen. Uh, a, a couple of books by Machen. I mean, I would suggest that anything Machen has written that you would read because he's an excellent um, scholar. And so, uh, although his his Greek uh, uh, to teach you Greek, that's rough. That one's really rough. But um, Christianity and liberalism, and there's one I specifically said you should buy. It's a small book. It's a classic book. Um, Christianity and liberalism. Um, 
You, you can pick that up. In 1923 is the edition I have. I'm sure there's newer ones. Um, any others? Any other questions? Yes, sir. Well, I think you are full-fledged far-right, by the way, and um, I think it's just the way that you, that you um, handle it, and, and, you know, I understand what you're talking about. You're talking about the guys that Dave Dietz was talking about last night, but, um, well, let's just talk about the SBC for a second here, we, and we need to be somewhat charitable because the SBC is a gigantic tent. It's a massive tent. I did a, uh, a podcast with uh, John Harris, which is Scott's son, um, on the... Uh, on the whole issue of uh, social justice and IFCA's stand, which has not shifted or moved. And, of course, the issues uh, last year's convention were on social justice issues. And although we didn't directly address what's going on in the SBC, that, that, uh, you know, they're mixed on what they call it. Sometimes they say we're not a denomination, we're an association of churches, and other times they say we're a denomination, so I don't even know if they know their identity but the reality is there are big tents and there is, you find extremes on both ends of that. Very conservatives, guys that, guys that we would feel very, very comfortable with and their theology might even be identical other than they're being involved in a denomination. All, all of that, they, they would say that. And then you find the wackiest of people. You can't even understand why they would want to be called Baptist, much less Southern Baptist. Like Stephen Furtick is in the SBC. It's like... Who's in charge of uh, their membership applications? My goodness. So, so you've got really drastic extremes. And so um, to be fair, we have to not broad brush all of them as that's the representative of the SBC. But when you, when you engage with people that are in a, in a, a broad group like that, then you need, to, you need to have, just like we do as pastors, we, we don't just assume that a person that walks in is all these things. Just like we don't want them saying, oh, you're in the IFC. Oh, you're a fighting fundamentalist. Um, yeah, and I'm going to knock you out for saying that. We don't, do, don't want to do that, right? So we want to uh, be... Uh, gracious and, and just assume the best and just have that conversation with them and find out where they are on that spectrum. Because they may be at absolute lockstep with where you're at and you're like, oh, good. Well, why are you in there? But remember that, that whole issue of, um, we didn't touch on it too much, but I have mentioned it before, is that in this history of uh, fundamentalism, going back to the, the early 1900s, the initial steps like Machen were try to work within the established structures and not leave them. We don't want to give it up. So if you tie that to the SBC, think about all that would be given up if you give it over to the liberals. So those guys that are trying to hang on and be faithful, let's, let's just think the best of them and then let's talk to them and say, and they may tell you things like that. They probably have a variety of reasons why their individual church is not leaving the SBC yet. But I guarantee you, for those guys that are trying to be faithful, that thought keeps coming up. Why am I still here? 
So we need to be, as Dave said last night, we need to be encouragers and we need to come alongside them and say, brother, I'm praying for you. It's a horrible thing that you're having to deal with, all of that. And then, of course, as they move across the spectrum towards the opposite side of that from the biblical conservative over to just there's a whole host of issues that could be brought up there. Um, Then, of course, you start to understand that this is a hard, hard thing. Uh, You know what the, the SBC convention that just happened showed us is at least on the issue of women in ministry, women as pastors, the SBC is far more conservative than not. But the fact that they even had such a fight shows us that there is a whole bunch of people that are not conservatives within the SBC. I don't know how that's going to be fixed. I'm just glad I'm not in the SBC. But be praying for our brothers. Because they have to try. They they had the conservative resurgence several years ago. And they pulled it. But they didn't fix everything. They just moved it in that direction. They have to continue to pull it. Uh, The only solution I can see is if they uh, just get rid of the idea that we're going to be a big tent. But that ties into the money and power thing. If you say, no, we're going we're gonna to restrict it to this, then the claim is going to be, you see, there's not room in here for the SBC, in the SBC for me. And that's what they did after that vote. And so a whole bunch of people left, even those that didn't even have women pastors, but are all in on egalitarianism and Christian feminism and all of that. They said, oh, then there's no room for us and we're leaving. That was Beth Moore's reason. There's no room in the SBC for Beth Moore. So she jump to the next, you know, because obviously there were conservatives and she's a conservative, so she jumped to the next conservative group, which was the Anglicans. So, <laughs> uh, I, th- I think we, we need to pray for our brothers and then we need to have conversations with the local pastors around you that are in the SBC and find out where they're at and pray with them and if they are of our type. Um, I, don't, I wouldn't go out there you know, trying to fly the IFCA flag and pitch it to them. You need to come over. But be ready and, and have those conversations about, well, in our, in our group, we don't have that kind of disunity about those issues because that's kind of settled in our documents. And in some of these things, the SBC would say, so, so is our problems, but they haven't held to them. And then they have to keep pulling back. They have to keep pulling people in. They've got a big problem. That's not our mess. Not our circus, not our monkeys. We don't have to worry about that. We got our own issues. But have conversations. That's what I would recommend. Have some conversations. Uh, be a listening ear. Uh, pray with them. Uh, you know, and if they're, if they're like-minded, then, then cooperate with them. Cooperate with them. Say, let's, let's, go, let's have some things together. Uh, but again, we have to determine where they are. There would be some SBC churches, I'd say, I wouldn't cooperate with them. That's, that's, uh, there's too much compromise there. So hope that's helpful. Yes, Ken. Uh, Harold Lindell wrote a book back in about the early 1980s uh, entitled Battle for the Bible. Then he wrote a follow-up book. I think he made a lot of enemies in this movement. Where did he finally end up? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, that would be an interesting thing to look up. Yeah. And the ISCA, we said, well, finally, the light is shining. Yes. And yeah. But I never heard after that what happened. I, I don't know what happened to Harold Lenzel later in his years, but I, I would say for any, we, we see some of these men that are great stalwarts of the faith, and then what starts to change in their theology, for me, is always a good warning for myself. 
And I just pray constantly, Lord, as I get older, don't let my doctrine slide. Because, you know, let's just be honest. I, my, my, I have one daughter that's been married. That means that very soon, Lord willing, I will be a grandpa. And all you grandpas know, you are not the same way with your grandchildren as you were with your children. You get soft. You, get, you just give them everything. They just look at you with those doughy eyes, and you're like, oh, yeah, everything you want. And, you know, we become grandpas in our doctrine if we're not careful. We, we, just, we just let ourselves slide. It was like, oh, I used, to be, I used to be much, you know, more serious about that kind of stuff. And now I've just learned just to relax and just not, not worry about that. So that's a danger for all of us. I would hope that we would mellow and we would refine and that we would become, uh, you know, clear on those things. Absolutely. But to abandon large chunks of what we believe. Oh, brothers, let's be careful that we don't do that. I don't know if Linzel did that. Um, so I would, don't want to imply that by my statements, but I would say we all need to be aware of it because that is a danger for us. Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes. Well, there's a question, you know, conservative evangelicals are wanting to ditch the name evangelical. It's, we got, it's gotten so bad. So evangelicalism is broader than the SBC is. You don't know what you're dealing with when you get evangelical. And a great example is the Lutherans. The ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, is absolutely not evangelical. And it's not even Lutheran. I think Luther himself would burn the church down if he was alive today. So, uh, you know, evangelical really doesn't have a lot of meaning. Uh, we are a subset of evangelicalism in its best ways. But I think that, um, you know, we ask, do you want to keep the name fundamentalist? Well, it's better than evangelical. I'll tell you that right now. And I think that there are people that would pr- prefer evangelical than fundamentalist. And in actuality, they're probably fundamentalists. So they got their own issues. So we, evangelicalism is a big, big mess today. It's a horrible mess today. I think it's a good name too. I don't, I don't think we should give that one up either, but I think we should define it. But if I'm going to define myself as something, it's easier to go to the right and just say I'm a fundamentalist. If you want to know what kind of evangelical I am, I'm not the Stephen Furtick kind of, I'm not the, you know, the Joel Olstein kind of evangelical. And they would be in that we would have people that would be gay Christians that are evangelicals. There's all kinds of, you know, things that are under that idea of evangelicalism. So it's not very helpful. So if anybody would want to know, I'd say, or they probably just talking to me would come to the conclusion, oh, you're one of those kinds of Christians. They used to call them in some circles, it's like, oh, you're a born again. Yeah, amen. I'm a, yeah, I'm a born again, and you need to be a born again too, Right? So I don't know how to answer that question better than that, but the broad evangelicalism is a mess. I would say a good portion of it is, is apostate. It's not evangelical. It's not part of the church, even though it runs in our circles and plays those games. Bethel Church is evangelical in the world's views. Bethel Church is apostate. It is not an evangelical church. It's not a Christian church. So anyways, um, let me get off on that. So did that help explain what I... Yes. Yeah. 
Yes. No, 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 it's okay. If you want to find out a little bit more of the kind of that idea is J.I. Packer's fundamentalism in the Word of God. He deals with it from the side of the British and their view of fundamentalism in America. They don't like it either. And so he likes the event. Now, this is an older book, but he likes the idea of being an evangelical in Britain. Now, again, that's a problem. Although in Britain, it's so um, secular as a nation that if you're an evangelical, that means you're a, a conservative versus the, the state church that is not conservative. So evangelical there has much more bearing. It, it's closer to fundamentalist in their setting, although it's still broader than we would say. So, uh, you know, I think that our terms, I told somebody the other day, you know, when we went to the ark, if you've gone to the ark, you'll see that they keep featuring the rainbow. They, they put the colors on the side of the ark at times in light so that it's all lit up in the rainbow. They've got an arch where it's all rainbow colored and have scripture there to reference the rainbow. It's like, we don't give the homosexual movement the rainbow. I'm like, well, let's just, get, let's just give, them, let's give them that. No, let's not give them anything. Let's take it. Let's keep it. Let's own it. Let's define it. And so I don't like giving up stuff to the enemy. And so uh, I, I don't think we should give anything up. I think we should advance. So um, one quick question, and then we're out of time. We're already over time. But yes, sir. Gunther. Yes, sir. I don't, uh, so whether or not we kind of slide into the social gospel type of stuff, is, is that what you're asking? No, no, I'm talking about uh, the, the, the national issues, like social issues. Oh, okay. issue of our work today. And we are falling the path of, we are openly siding uh, with the evangelical movement of, let's say, abortion, whatever it is, whatever, homosexual, whatever. It could be a good issue. issue. Yes. Yes. You're talking about politics. You're talking about politics. So let me just say. Yes. So evangelicalism, uh, you know, especially this goes back not that long ago where there was a marriage between uh, evangelicalism and the, the, you know, the religious right and the political movement. Okay. Now we can't, we can't speak about this across fundamentalism because it, it varies, it, it varies within churches, it varies within individuals and their involvement. And I think it needs to, for the most part, the politics side, because remember the Church of Jesus Christ isn't American. It's, it's worldwide. We have a global God. And so that affects, Christianity is not to be wed with any nation. It is King Jesus over all and all nations must bow. So we need to keep that in mind. But we're also practically citizens of nations. And so that means that whatever nation you're a part of, you need to follow what the scriptures say on how you need to deal with your, within your nation. There are very specific things about how we're supposed to deal with the rule of government, how we're supposed to deal with our rights as citizens. Paul did that as well. How we're supposed to speak up for truth. You mentioned abortion, and I don't know if you intended it this way, but abortion is not a political issue. It is a moral issue. And so, yes, we should all speak out against the killing of innocent babies. That's not a political issue. So if, if, 
we don't see these things as this is moral. This is what Scripture speaks out against. And we will speak out. And we will do it from our pulpits. And we will do it out in the city square. We will speak out against what is wrong. Homosexuality is not a political issue. It's a moral issue. And we need to speak out against it because it's an abomination to God. And these people need Christ. There, we, we don't have to be harsh, but we need to be truthful. And then there's the issue of who's going to be the next president. Not a moral issue. Now, there are moral issues tied into politics. But we need to be careful that we don't become guilty of syncretism, the marrying of two religions together. And for some, politics, whatever party you're part of, is more like a religion than it is something else. And so we are Christians. We are citizens of heaven. We are pilgrims in this land. This world is not our home. And that's got to be right there in front. And then, as citizens secondarily to whatever nation we're in, then we need to learn how to live in this world at peace with others as long as we're able to, making sure that we obey the laws as long as they don't call us to go against the words of King Jesus. We will try to be good citizens. But there is a difference between what we can do and what we cannot do because Jesus calls us to something else. That we really need to think through all of that. And we need to be careful that we are not creating within our own hearts as well as in our churches a syncretism. Because that is, in any form, is bad. Whether it's the marrying of politics or it's the marrying of something else to our Christianity. So, I don't know if that answered your question, but uh, I'm a a Christian first. And then I'm whatever politically, secondarily. And I am very patriotic. Even though I have British socks on. I did that more for Winston Churchill today. But, all right, well, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss. Thank you very much.